A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 5 Bedrashane to Minia, Part 2. I ventured to object that if they slept unanimously, forty would not be of much more use than four. Whereupon he rose, drew himself to his full height, touched his beard, and said, with a magnificent melodramatic air, If they sleep, if they, sleep they shall be bastinadoed till they die. And now our good luck seemed to have deserted us. For three days and nights the adverse wind continued to blow with such force that the men could not even track against it. Moored under that dreary bank, we saw our ten days' start melting away, and could only make the best of our misfortunes. Happily the long island close by, and the banks on both sides of the river, were populous with sand-grouse, so Alfred went out daily with his faithful George and his unerring gun, and brought home game in abundance, while we took long walks, sketched boats and camels, and chaffered with native women for silver torques and bracelets. These torques, in Arabic, tuk, are tubular but massive, penannular, about as thick as one's little finger, and finished with a hook at one end and a twisted loop at the other. The girls would sometimes put their veils aside and make a show of bargaining, but more frequently, after standing for a moment with great, wandering black velvety eyes staring shyly into ours, they would take fright like a troop of startled deer and vanish with shrill cries, half of laughter, half of terror. At Beni Suef we encountered our first sandstorm. It came down the river about noon, showing like a yellow fog on the horizon, and rolling rapidly before the wind. It tore the river into angry waves, and blotted out the landscape as it came. The distant hills disappeared first, then the palms beyond the island, then the boats close by. Another second, and the air was full of sand. The whole surface of the plain seemed in motion. The banks rippled, the yellow dust poured down through every rift and cleft in hundreds of tiny cataracts. But it was a sight not to be looked upon with impunity. Hair, eyes, mouth, ears were instantly filled, and we were driven to take refuge in the saloon. Here, although every window and door had been shut before the storm came, the sand found its way in clouds. Books, papers, carpets were covered with it, and it settled again as fast as it was cleared away. This lasted just one hour, and was followed by a burst of heavy rain, after which the sky cleared and we had a lovely afternoon. From this time forth we saw no more rain in Egypt. At length, on the morning of the fourth day after our first appearance at Beni Suef and the seventh since leaving Cairo, the wind veered around again to the north, and we once more got under way. It was delightful to see the big sail again towering up overhead, and to hear the swish of the water under the cabin windows. But we were still one hundred and nine miles from Rhoda, and we knew that nothing but an extraordinary run of luck could possibly get us there by the twenty-third of the month, with time to see Beni Hassan on the way. Meanwhile, however, we make fair progress, mooring at sunset when the wind falls about three miles north of Biba. Next day, by help of the same light breeze which again springs up a little after dawn, 
we go at a good pace between flat banks fringed here and there with palms, and studded with villages more or less picturesque. There is not much to see, and yet one never wants for amusement. Now we pass an island of sandbank covered with snow-white paddy-birds, which rise tumultuously at our approach. Next comes Biba, perched high along the edge of the precipitous bank, its odd-looking Coptic convent roofed all over with little mud domes, like a cluster of earth-bubbles. By and by we pass a deserted sugar-factory, with shattered windows and a huge, gaunt, blackened chimney, worthy of Birmingham or Sheffield. And now we catch a glimpse of the railway, and hear the last scream of a departing engine. At night we moor within sight of the factory chimneys and hydraulic tubes of Magaga, and next day get on nearly to Galosana, which is the last station town before Minia. It is now only too clear that we must give up all thought of pushing on to Beni Hassan before the rest of the party shall come on board. We have reached the evening of our ninth day. We are still forty-eight miles from Rhoda, and another adverse wind might again delay us indefinitely along the way. All risks taken into account, we decide to put off our meeting till the twenty-fourth, and transfer the appointment to Minia, thus giving ourselves time to track all the way in case of need. So an Arabic telegram is concocted, and our fleetest runner starts off with it to Golasana before the office closes for the night. The breeze, however, does not fail, but comes back next morning with the dawn. Having passed Golosana, we come to a wide reach in the river, at which point we are honoured by a visit from a Muslim sultan of particular sanctity, named Holy Sheikh Cotton. Now Holy Sheikh Cotton, who is a well-fed, healthy-looking young man of about thirty, makes his first appearance swimming, with his garments twisted into a huge turban on the top of his head, and only his chin above water. Having made his toilette in the small boat, he presents himself on deck, and receives an enthusiastic welcome. Rais Hassan hugs him, the pilot kisses him, the sailors come up one by one, bringing little tributes of tobacco and paestras which he accepts with the air of a pope receiving Peter's pence. All dripping as he is, and smiling like an affable triton, he next proceeds to touch the tiller, the ropes, and the ends of the yards, in order, says Ptolemy, to make them holy, and then, with some kind of final charm or muttered incantation, he plunges into the river again, and swims off to repeat the same performance on board the bagstones. From this moment the prosperity of our voyage is assured. The captain goes about with a smile on his stern face, and the crew look as happy as if we had given them a guinea, for nothing can go wrong with a dahabiyah that has been made holy by holy Sheikh Cotton. We are now certain to have favorable winds, to pass the cataract without incident, to come back in health and safety as we set out. But what, it may be asked, has holy Sheikh Cotton done to make his blessing so efficacious? He gets money in plenty, he fasts no oftener than other Mohammedans, he has two wives, he never does a stroke of work, and he looks the picture of sleek prosperity. Yet he is a saint of the first water, and when he dies miracles will be performed at his tomb, and his eldest son will succeed him in the business. We had the pleasure of becoming acquainted with a good many saints in the course of our eastern travels, but I do not know that we ever found they had done anything to merit the position. 
One very horrible old man named Sheikh Salim has, it is true, been sitting on a dirt heap near Fashut, unclothed, unwashed, unshaven, for the last half-century or more, never even lifting his hand to his mouth to feed himself. But Sheikh Cotton had gone to no such pious lengths, and was not even dirty. We are by this time drawing towards a range of yellow cliffs that have long been visible on the horizon and which figure in the maps as Gebel at Tair. The Arabian desert has been closing up on the eastern bank for some time past, and now rolls in on undulating drifts to the water's edge. Yellow boulders crop out here and there above the mounded sand, which looks as if it might cover many a forgotten temple. Presently the clay bank is gone, and a low barrier of limestone rock, black and shiny next to the water-line, has taken its place and now, a long way ahead, where the river bends and the level cliffs lead on into the far distance, a little brown speck is pointed out as the convent of the pulley. Perched on the brink of the precipice, it looks no bigger than an ant-heap. We had heard much of the fine view to be seen from the platform on which this convent is built, and it had originally entered into our program as a place to be visited on the way. But Minia has now to be gained at all costs, so this project has to be abandoned with a sigh. And now the rocky barrier rises higher, quarried here and there in dazzling gaps of snow-white cuttings. And now the convent shows clearer, and the cliffs become loftier, and the bend in the river is reached, and a long perspective of flat-topped precipice stretches away into the dim distance. It is a day of saints and swimmers. As the Dahabiyah approaches, a brown pole is seen bobbing up and down in the water a few hundred yards ahead. Then one, two, three bronze figures dash down a steep ravine below the convent walls and plunge into the river. A shrill chorus of voices, growing momentarily more audible, is borne upon the wind, and in a few minutes the boat is beset by a shoal of medicant monks vociferating with all their might. On a Christian, Yahawaji! On a Christian, Yahawaji. I am a Christian, O traveller. As these are only Coptic monks and not Muslim sentins, the sailors, half in rough play, half in earnest, drive them off with punting poles, and only one shivering, streaming object, wrapped in a borrowed blanket, is allowed to come on board. He is a fine, shapely man, aged about forty, with splendid eyes and teeth, a well-formed head, skin the colour of a copper beech-leaf, and a face expressive of such ignorance, timidity, and half-savage watchfulness as makes one's heart ache. And this is a Copt, a descendant of the true Egyptian stock, one of those whose remote ancestors exchanged the worship of the old gods for Christianity under the rule of Theodosius some fifteen hundred years ago, and whose blood is supposed to be purer of Mohammedan intermixture than any in Egypt. Remembering these things, it is impossible to look at him without a feeling of profound interest. It may be only fancy, yet I think I see in him a different type to that of the Arab, a something, however slight, which recalls the sculptured figures in the tomb of T. But while we are thinking about his magnificent pedigree, our poor cop's teeth are chattering piteously. So we give him a shilling or two for the sake of all he represents in the history of the world, and with these, and the donation of an empty bottle, he swims away contented, crying again and again, Kether, Kyrake, Sitte, 
Kether, Kyrate, Kitir. Thank you, ladies, thank you very much. And now the convent, with its clustered domes, is passed and left behind. The rock here is of the same rich, tawny hue as at Tura, and the horizontal strata of which it is composed have evidently been deposited by water. That the Nile must at some remote time have flowed here in an immensely higher level seems also probable, for the whole face of the range is honeycombed and water-worn for miles in succession. Seeing how these fantastic forms, arched, clustered, and pendant, resemble the recessed ornamentation of Saracenic buildings, I could not help wondering whether some early Arab architect might not once upon a time have taken a hint from some such rocks as these. Thus the day wanes, and the level cliffs keep with us all the way, now breaking into little lateral valleys and cul-de-sac in which nestle clusters of tiny huts and green patches of lupin, now plunging sheer down into the river, now receding inland and leaving space for a belt of cultivated soil and a fringe of feathery palms. By and by comes sunset, when every cast shadow in the recesses of the cliffs turns to pure violet, and the face of the rock glows with a rudier gold, and the palms on the western bank stand up in solid bronze against a crimson horizon. Then the sun dips, and instantly the whole range of cliffs turns to a dead greenish-gray, while the sky above and behind them is as suddenly suffused with pink. When this effect has lasted for something like eight minutes, a vast arch of deep blue shade, about as large in diameter as a rainbow, creeps slowly up the eastern horizon, and remains distinctly visible as long as the pink flush against which it is defined yet lingers in the sky. Finally the flush fades out, the blue becomes uniform, the stars begin to show, and only a broad glow in the west marks which way the sun went down. About a quarter of an hour later comes the afterglow, when for a few minutes the sky is filled with a soft, magical light, and the twilight gloom lies warm upon the landscape. When this goes, it is night, but still one long beam of light streams up in the tracks of the sun, and remains visible for more than two hours after the darkness has set in. End of section 14